dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody and welcome to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. This is Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's episode is a very special episode. It actually, uh, I'm without my co-host Meryl McNally for today's episode. She had an obligation that prevented her from joining me today. But I'm in discussion with Erin Carlson, who just has a wonderful book published called Queen Meryl, The Iconic Roles, Heroic Deeds, and Legendary Life of Meryl Streep. You might know Erin's uh, previous novel, which is called I'll Have What She's Having, which is uh, an, a book about Nora Ephron and the three romantic comedies that she made that changed the the genre. So it, w- it is, as you'll hear, a wonderful conversation that I had with Aaron. I've since joked to my co-host Meryl that if I ever die, Aaron should be taking my spot on the podcast because she can slide right in for me. Um, I hope you will check out her book. I read it before this interview, obviously, and I absolutely loved it. I think it's the perfect, perfect book for both diehard Meryl fans and people who are relatively new to her work who want to explore more about her. Um, Visit your local retailer. That's the best place to do that. But of course, there are online entities, Amazon and otherwise, where you can find this book. Visit www.erinlcarlson.com. That will get you uh, some more information on Erin as well. Thank you so much to her. Uh, everybody, please feel free to uh, email us at Podcast at gmail.com. I actually just recently discovered a whole bunch of emails that I had somehow missed. So I'm trying to respond to everybody. But if you wrote us and I haven't responded to you, I'm really sorry. There was a chunk there where I actually just completely missed emails. They weren't being forwarded correctly to me. So... Um, anyway, I'm trying to get back to everybody quickly. Um, anything else? I don't think so. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a little bit longer than normal, but I think it's a lot of fun. And it was just really great to have this conversation with Aaron. So enjoy. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to do that thing we always do on this podcast, which is pretend like we haven't been talking now for 20 minutes. But welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am extremely flattered, and I'm so happy to talk to another Meryl Street fan who may know more than I do about Meryl. I don't. I don't think so. I. It's one of the things I did want to get into because um, you. Uh, you did, that was the thing that I was waiting for in the book was, you know, is there something that will surprise me? And actually the stuff with Mike Nichols was the big surprise for me. I actually didn't know about that whole dust up with, um, what was it? Let it, not, was it Remains of the Day? Is that the movie? Yes. Yeah. She, um, really wanted to play the Emma Thompson role. You know, this very upstairs, downstairs um, saga where she uh, plays a housekeeper who's obsessed with the butler played by Sir Anthony Hopkins. And Meryl was like, yep, I'm going to play that role. Jeremy Irons was up for the Anthony Hopkins role. And Mike Nichols was going to direct. And um, so Jeremy and... Meryl read for those respective parts, and Mike was like, no, nah, I 
I, this just doesn't feel right. So instead of telling Meryl, Mike didn't want to, you know, go the Jeremy-Meryl route. They had already been in uh, the French lieutenant's woman together. So um, he thought Emma Thompson and then Anthony Hopkins would be better fit. So Meryl was furious. And instead of telling her, he um, went to Sam Cohn, their agent, and uh, Sam Cohn refused to deliver the message to Meryl and she was just you know kind of dumbfounded so they were they weren't communicating this rejection to her so she felt betrayed and the friendship fizzled out right and yeah yeah, it kind of came back and it's interesting with the people involved because then she like right around the same time because she and Jeremy Irons were both in that like what is probably my least favorite Meryl movie, which is House of the Spirits. Right around the same time, I hate that movie. I know that movie I is the worst. It's the worst, um, and so it's almost a like I don't know. That's it's really interesting that the key players kind of ended up making a different movie together and so much worse. <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. But you know they mended they mended fences at at some point and they worked it out. But I don't know that was that was that was new information to me. I had no idea that there had been a feud. And there's there's other things that you talk about in your book that was brand new too. So I think it's like such a great. I really really love the book and I think it's a great compliment to it's like it's the Merrill book that interests me. Like I would buy it even if I was well I did buy it before we were going to do the interview. But I think it's for somebody like me, that's the kind of thing that's most interesting is like you dissected her films. I feel like there are biographies about her kind of life before movies. I feel like that Her Again book was like, it basically stopped at Kramer versus Kramer. And it was all about, you know, her life up to that point, which was great. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know about. And it was certainly interesting. But I was, I've been waiting for this book, which is the book about her movies and like what was going on in her life while she was making these movies. So I'm glad you wrote this book because this is the one I was waiting for. Oh my gosh, thank you. That's so great to hear, especially from you. And uh, I loved her again. Yeah. It was such a captivating, very focused portrait of young Meryl. And... Um, I just love that book, and it helped me when I was writing the, you know, chapter one, um, Meryl, the early years, from geek to street, I called it. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I feel like um, my introduction to Meryl was first in the River Wild. I was 13. I had never seen a female action star. I didn't even really know who she was, and was sort of blown away from that. So Meryl entered my consciousness in 1993 <laughs> um, and then she like re-entered it with a force you know uh, in 2006 when the Devil Wears product came out and I was a young you know Anne Hathaway-esque editor in New York City and that movie spoke to me so I knew the older Meryl you know the yep. Meryl that you know, broke the barriers for actresses of a certain age, uh, you know, top the box office and just disproved every single myth about, you know, 
grand dames in Hollywood, you know, having to play the wacky aunt character. Mm-hmm. She, uh, you know, she proved everybody wrong, and she's, like, laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> yeah. She's an aspirational figure. Um, a Miranda Priestley, but not quite. In reality, she is much warmer and much nicer, but she um, holds, uh, she's an icon for uh, all these sorts, all these generations, and she's managed to sustain her career by working with younger talent like Freda Gerwig in the Little Women remake, so I was fascinated um, to um, look at the grander arc of Meryl's career. Yeah. Not just um, young, beautiful Meryl, but um, but how young, beautiful Meryl became the Meryl that we know and love today. So I wanted also to introduce um, younger people who know her through the, the Devil Wears Prada. I wanted I wanted to introduce them to her older work and her amazing work in the eighties, her eighties heyday, right. if you want to call it that, of accents. Yeah. And um, sort of excavate those roles and bring them to the fore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, my first Meryl Streep movie was The River Wild. <laughs> exactly the same. Was it really? Totally. My, <laughs> I, rem- I saw it in the, th- my, I had, you know, a best friend who was two doors down from me growing up and it was, it was odd because his aunt would take us to movies. I don't know. I guess she, we were like the, people she would go with and so she would always drag us to these movies that we had never heard of and um she brought she went she wanted to see the river wild and we didn't know anything about it and i i loved it and it was the first movie of hers that i saw and i was kind of fascinated with her from that point but anyway that's neither here nor there but i think that's um, amazing because i don't know anyone else who's had that experience Actually, Literally. I, I, Meryl and I talked about it because that was a big, my co-host Meryl, um, we talked about it when we did our episode on that movie because she had a very similar thing. I don't think it was her first Meryl movie, but it was like a, as you know, a young girl seeing what you were talking about, a female basically action star was really huge for her and was one of the first times that she kind of saw herself represented on screen in a kind of badass way. And um, so we just raved about that movie. And I got more emails from people, from our listeners, about that movie than any other movie we've done. That's insane. Yeah. Um, It also, like, have you noticed that movie is constantly, like, always playing, like, somewhere on cable television? (laughs) It is always, it's, like, continuous loop. Yeah. Like, oh, there's because it's a good movie it's a great movie and the gender roles are flipped so i was confused as a teen i was like wait shouldn't bruce willis be in this movie yeah she got super buffed for this role like she was like on the treadmill for six hours a day or maybe that was more exaggerating who knows but you totally believe it and joe mazzello played her son in that movie and he was like oh yeah she got she was whipped and she could, like, navigate the rapids without a raft. So she could swim the rapids. Um, there were, like, tough moments. You know, she um, she almost drowned on the movie. Right. <laughs> which, which is in the book. Because Curtis Hansen, the director, was kind of a hard-ass. And he didn't have a good bedside manner. 
Right. So he would be like perched up on the cliff and he'd be like, Meryl, go again, go again. It would be like 10 hours later. She would still be on the river. So she was really tired and was flung out of the raft, um, hit some rapids, was flung out, flung out of the raft, disappeared under the water. Everyone is freaking out. And a few seconds later, she resurfaced with her life vest. Uh, you know, somebody uh, got her to shore. She gave Curtis Hansen, you know, a thing or two. Right. <laughs> she was like, don't ever do that again. Right. When I say I can't do something, listen to me. Right. But she also so, did that yeah. scene again the next day because they hadn't gotten in the shot that they needed. So that's my favorite part about that whole thing is she did the thing again the next day. After what she went through... With that, like she would, it would have been totally within her. Like I don't think anybody would have argued with her at all if she if she had said, "Nope, the stunt woman's doing that." But actually, I think you, that's another thing that was news to me was I that I didn't know that was one of the things. Wasn't that the one where the stunt woman? Was, oh no, the stunt woman was afraid of the lion in Out of Africa. I'm, yeah, I'm confused, but I was thinking it was the stunt woman was afraid of that rapids oh. for some reason. But no, that's not true. There was the stunt woman in River Wild, Arlene Burns, now the mayor of Atmosphere, Oregon. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know yeah, that either. Yeah, a small town in Oregon. Oh, yeah, she had spent a ton of time in Tibet, as one does. So she was just, like, hanging out in Montana somewhere, and Curtis Hansen was scouting locations for the River Wild. And he's like, oh, you're a river guy? You should be Meryl's stunt double. So uh, Meryl and Arlene Arlene spent some time together before filming, and Meryl was mimicking Arlene, and Arlene was noticing this. She's like, well, you know, I like myself, so I didn't have a problem with that. Right. (laughs) So Meryl was essentially becoming Arlene, but when Roy Helland, her makeup guy, got onto the set, everyone had to back off, so... Arlene just felt distant from Meryl for the rest of the shoot because, you know, Roy is Meryl's trusted makeup guy. Right. But he's also somewhat of a bodyguard. Yeah. Like, you always have to confer with Roy before you confer with Meryl and kind of go through him. So he's the gatekeeper. Literally everyone I interviewed talked about him and brought him up. Right. Everyone. I feel like, you know, if you're pitching something to Meryl, like, yeah, instead of going through the publicist, you probably go to him if you can. Like, if you can find the contact info for him, you probably go to him instead of her publicist. Oh, yeah. He knows all the secrets. And, all you know, it's um, Arlene Burns, the river guy, uh, compared him, compared Meryl to a Buddhist monk, like an esteemed, highly respected Buddhist monk. And uh, Roy to what she called a Rin Posh, so a follower of the monk who is mean to everybody else except for the monk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Roy would get under everybody's skin on purpose because he could. There was no firing Roy. Um, at the same time, he's extremely talented oh, and yeah. extremely funny and clever. And I don't think a lot of men on film sets quite know how to handle a personality like that, uh, especially the crew. They're very, like, guys, guys. Uh, I hate that expression. But he would he would crochet uh, 
Barbie doll outfits, and no one had ever seen anybody like that. Right. <laughs> so uh, Meryl let Roy be Roy, though, and uh, their relationship has, you know, stood the test of time. He won um, the Oscar for uh, uh the hair and makeup Oscar. What is that called again? I should know this. Being I, an Oscar file. Yeah. Uh, but I, he won for the Iron Lady. Right. She won for the Iron Lady. She thanked him in her speech before she thanked Don. I, I know. Believe. Yeah, that's... A, yeah, that was kind of the big... Uh, I think she'd been hoping probably for him to win, I would assume, more than she even wanted to win herself. You know, like she had just wanted that, I know, for him for all those years. Because he'd been nominated a few times before and he had not won, I think, he was right? The Susan Lynchy. Susan Lynchy of makeup guys. Yeah. Like, lost out so many times and then finally prevailed for Iron Lady. Yeah. Uh, which was nice to see. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. So we were talking um, before before we were starting to record about how tricky it was. Basically, you know, what Meryl and I do for this podcast, you did as well as research for your book, which is like go through all of Meryl's movies because you were talking about all of Meryl's movies. So it was difficult to find a few of them. You and I were lamenting that it's essentially impossible to find uh, one of her made-for-TV you know, mi- movies from the 70s called The Deadliest Season. But um, were there ones in your research that you were surprised by one way or another? A movie that was kind of surprisingly good or one that you remembered being a little bit better than it was? That's just something we're interested in as, as people who kind of critique these movies um, you know, oh, well, all the so way was through. Was there a movie that I was completely surprised by? Yeah. Um, in a good way. I love Plenty. Mm. Uh, I just love it. Do you do you like Plenty? I'm curious. I remember thinking it was a um, kind of stranger movie than I remember it being um, originally. And I think for her role, it's more of like, it's it's like a very very unique Meryl role I know that's like a super vague way of talking about it but it's just such an odd film if I remember correctly it's a really weird movie yeah. um, the character well it's um, it's uh, based on the uh, on a play by David Hare and he was inspired because he had uh, read a statistic somewhere that um all these women, all these British women who uh, were spies and occupied France during World War II, when they came back to the UK and they got married, they quickly got divorced. And that was just, divorce was just not something you did back then. (laughs) It was um, not the norm. And he was surprised by that. So he based Meryl's character and Susan Trahern on a woman you know, women like that who were just frustrated with their lives. So their lives weren't exciting anymore. Um, here they were, like, off, like, behaving like men, you know, having adventures, uh, living on the edge. You know, it was very life and death and very exciting. So when Meryl's character, Susan Trahern, came back to the U.K., back to London, she became a bureaucrat's life, a wife, uh, the wife of Charles Dance's character, and she was reduced. She couldn't get hired anywhere. 
because she wasn't a man. So she was reduced to giving cocktail parties and drawing out conversation from really boring men, (laughs) you know, other diplomats. And she was just a trophy wife, and um, she spirals downward. Like, she just completely loses it, and it's so campy. It's at one point, um, Tracy Ullman's character says, uh, after one of Susan's meltdowns, she describes one of Susan's meltdowns as psychotic cabaret. Right. And it's really funny, sardonic line. And um, this was Meryl's first foray into a blatantly unlikable, irascible, terrible character who was so mean to her husband and so selfish. But she was also so alive. This was um, a complicated woman, you know, um, psychotic cabaret, but it somehow felt the most female (laughs) of any of her roles, the most uh, alive and the most real. Yeah. She lobbied to play that part, and the part was made for her, and she was funny and tragic and hateful and endearing, even, and you it's just, it was highly unusual to, um, to see a leading lady in a role like that, which was so, you know, so unlikable. And critics hated it. Because critics, you know, they want their leading ladies, even back then, to be sexy and warm and funny. And Meryl was not that in that movie. And that played out off screen. She and Charles danced. Uh-huh. Uh, hated each other, <laughs> hated each other. But when you are, when she is performing with actors of lesser talent, she has to manipulate the chemistry, the dynamic off screen, in order to recreate it on screen. Right. You know, in order to, he had to feel, he had to hate her so much in real life, and. Um, he had to hate her so much in real life that that translated itself during filming. So she had something to act against. Right. She had to feel that too. She had to feel that friction. And so, um, yeah, he and Meryl hated each other. He made a little dig at her. Uh, he started a miniseries with Shirley MacLaine in the 80s. And um, he was interviewing about it. It's a couple of years after Plenty came out. And... Um, just starts, you know, makes a little dig at Meryl. He's like, you know, I like Shirley because she acts from the gut. And I prefer that because with an actress like Meryl Streep, per se, it's all intellectual. Meryl's in her head, but, you know, Shirley's just a natural. So that was him sort of like right. <laughs> getting back at Meryl because Meryl and Tracy used to gang up on him on the set. Right. He did not like that. Right. So that was kind of an interesting thing that I learned in the book, too. Because um, I learned that's part of her process. Yeah. Even on Silkwood, um, she was acting opposite Cher. That movie was edited for Cher because, sure, Cher's a natural performer, but she doesn't. she didn't have the chops, the acting chops that Meryl had. And Meryl had to make sure Cher believe they were best friends 
right. in order to play that role. Right. And sure did believe they were best friends, and she was like, oh, Meryl, I'm going to move to New York to be closer to you, and all of that. Like, right. she... She believed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's, it's, you know, we've heard at the various, you know, like lifetime tribute things to Meryl to the, Mike Nichols would frequently talk about that movie and how, you know, she and Cher became best friends and she and Kurt Russell kind of, you know, he kind of not really, but, you know, fell in love with her a little bit. And like the people who played, you know, the, the people at the plant that weren't, you know, the, the nicest of folks kind of were suspicious of her and she kind of like you say she kind of carried that um off into set and there's something really unique to my mind about like the parallels between that and like what Dustin Hoffman had put her through a few years a few years earlier on Kramer versus Kramer like what Meryl did is way 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 less like I think Dustin like there's no question in my mind that Dustin took it way too far on the set of Kramer versus Kramer and just like did things to you know, really push her, you know, smashing a glass to get a reaction. You know, like he could have hurt her, um, slapping her, totally inappropriate. You know, like things that things that I don't think he should have done and, and things not to mention the emotional abuse of, you know, taunting her with her recently deceased partner's name. So like she kind of did some of uh, like a 10% version of that, it seems like, with other people, because I'm sure she never did anything outwardly mean to, to anybody. But at the same time, she was kind of seeing what the offstage energy could do in front of a screen. It's interesting when somebody is willing to do that, because it kind of means sometimes having an uncomfortable onset environment, and that can't be fun. Like, it would just be easier to keep the peace and just, you know enjoy the experience but oh. if you're going for the better film yeah. it's a choice you know she um and a lot of people think that um friction hostility on a movie set uh, makes for a better product um i would disagree with that I, whatever serves the the film uh, but meryl definitely um does not go out of her way if there, you know to create a peaceful environment if the movie does not call for that, if right. the world does not call for that. Uh, for instance, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, she deliberately created a uh, distance between herself, uh, Stanley Tucci, and Hathaway and Emily Blunt, um, mostly Anne and Emily. She wanted them, she wanted her legend to precede her. She wanted them to fear her. Right. And she, um, she told them, look, um, the real Meryl is warm and maternal. I mean, she has four kids. And uh, so she'd be that, she'd be that Meryl, like if she'd see Anne, you know, before filming, you know, in a table read, she'd be like, oh, hi, how are you? And then before filming, she was like, just to let you know, I'm not going to be your best friend. Um, I'm, the Oscar winner here. You are the ingenue, and I'm going to make you feel it. And that's what Anne felt. They they feared her and her presence, and uh, that uh, deliberate uh, psychological manipulation created a better movie and uh, created you know begat better performances out of Anne and Emily. Yeah. 
and Emily's star-making performance uh, as well. So there's a method to Meryl's madness. For uh, sure. But she doesn't have to mine her personal trauma like Dustin did on Kramer versus Kramer. Right. Nor does uh, she seem... to act the role. Right. Nor does she seem comfortable, like, forcing somebody else to do that. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of the difference, is she doesn't... She's not going to taunt somebody in order to get a performance. She'll just kind of maybe keep herself at a distance, which is a perfectly, like, reasonable and, and rational thing to do, you know, in it, order there to... There is an exception to that. Um, that John Patrick Shanley uh, did say that she taunted Philip Seymour Hoffman on the set of Doubt. Right. So she'd be like, I'm... But she didn't do it in a mean way. She did it in a kind of big sister way, an obnoxious big sister way. Um, in order to, um, she just wanted to get him going before their big battle themes, if you will. So she'd be like, I'm going to get you, you know? Yeah. And he would just get, he, he was annoyed by it because she wouldn't stop. She wouldn't relent. And, um, he got worked up and the performances were even more explosive for that reason, but they weren't like best buds on that movie and she wanted it that way right which is interesting I mean, he's super intense though like could you imagine him being like fun uh, i mean he's a the late great Seymour Hoffman but i can't imagine him being super fun on set right well <laughs> and that's kind of what i was thinking about it too is he seems like somebody who was um at least at points pretty method himself you know like i think he would understand that process yeah. at the very least you know a tormented artist Right. He was uh, deeply, deeply troubled and tormented, and Meryl's not. Right. Uh, she's just, uh, she's just not. <laughs> and they, they had also worked together on the Mike Nichols um, Shakespeare in the Park thing, the Seagull, a few years previous. You know, so they'd had the opportunity to work together, and you know, I'm sure if it had been a horrible experience they wouldn't have you know one of them wouldn't have been in the movie probably philip seymour hoffman wouldn't have been in the in that movie actually we we recently did that episode too and some of the like alternate castings like instead of philip seymour hoffman um i can't remember who it was like tom hanks was in the running because of course he was he was up for the running he's up what tom cruise yeah that's another one that was news from your book that's what that's what one of the imdb trivia things said it might not have been true you never know with those things it it seems like tom hanks was up for like anything big in that period of time so i wouldn't be surprised but the other ones that were listed on imdb were david hyde pierce from fraser and john cusack both of which are completely shocking to me in terms of like well for a lot of reasons and they're both good actors but it's insane they're good actors and um, the problem is with, oh i didn't even know that um this is why i love this podcast <laughs> um, um so david hyde pierce is too nice yeah he is one of the loveliest people i've ever interviewed my background for your listeners i was an entertainment reporter forever for the AP and the Hollywood Reporter. So I feel like I've met basically everybody except for the young Gen Z actors that I don't know anymore. Right. I don't know anything about Zendaya. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
but David Hyde Pierce too nice for that role. John Cusack uh, too soft, yeah. um, too confident maybe, um, not crazy enough. Yeah, there's something a little say. off. Yeah. So in terms of in terms of the research that you did for this book, like, are there you know co-stars, directors? that you spoke to about Meryl's work that you found to be particularly helpful and or interesting to, to speak to? Well, the one that comes to mind right now, and because I um, was thinking about her today, uh, she's in The Great Society with Brian Cox from Succession, Barbara Garrick. Oh. She plays uh, Lady Bird Johnson at Lincoln Center. And um, I feel like I just took a BuzzFeed quiz, which succession character are you? And I got Shiv. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, Brian Cox is, like, top of mind right now. But um, Barbara, um, and this isn't in the book because I um, literally was just emailing with her. And um, she was telling me, I didn't, I had no idea that she was in Postcards from the Edge. She had, like, a bit role with Annette Benning. And I believe it got cut. So all, Mike Nichols loved Barbara. Um, all of her scenes basically got cut. But she had spent a lot of time on set. And Meryl, her first time working with Meryl, she loves Meryl. But I wish that this bit, uh, I wish I could pop this in the book, <laughs> maybe in the paperback version. She's like, I've never worked with anyone who was so hyper alert to all signals, and so Meryl would walk onto the set, and she would just be, as Barbara described, just very alert of what was happening around her, even if it was far away. And um, I know that sounds vague, like it might be something that you had to see to believe, but um, I believe that Meryl was hyper-conscious of all the moving parts around her, and... um, kind of herself is controlling it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and Meryl's whole career has been about control, from her technical control of her roles to controlling her co-stars to controlling the script. She does not get enough credit for um, her script rewrites. Right. Uh, you know, tweaking dialogue. Um, she gets to control who uh, her co-stars are and how they behave around her. And I believe, um, I don't think she's an egomaniac. I do not think that, um, however, you become that successful without not having an ego. Right. Um, I think she was born to do this. Um, Just like Steve Jobs was born to found Apple. Uh, Barack Obama was born to be president. Meryl was born to be the greatest actress of our lifetimes. And I feel like she thinks of herself as as the center of each film that she does. Yeah. And that was surprising to me that Barbara said that. Interesting. Yeah. You know, if you, if you think about it, like, you know, we were talking earlier about um, plenty and like her run in the eighties was so unique because like, I mean, she was nominated for almost every single thing that she did. Um, 
But that was like the period of time where both Plenty, as you were just talking about earlier, and Sophie's Choice and a couple other ones uh, out of Africa. She has that great audition story um, with with Sidney Pollack, where like that was a period of time where she actually had to like chase down these roles, um, where obviously now I think she gets basically, you know, she's the top of the list for every movie that has somebody vaguely her age in it. And, um, you know, it's it's a little bit different at this point, I think, for her. Uh, but, you know, yeah. the work that came out at that period, she also seemed to kind of, uh, kind of fully invest in every character she did. She wasn't pumping them out quite as much. And I know she was also having kids and taking time off when she needed to, you know, to be at home. Whereas... Now all of her kids are out of the house, so I'm sure she can make a movie whenever she wants to now. Um, But yeah, there's something in there about that idea of, you know, like, especially in the 80s and into the 90s with Postcards from the Edge, where like, yeah, she she was by that point nominated almost every year. She had already kind of established herself as as movie royalty, and she could just make every movie about her. Her character, you about know, her. yeah, yeah. Well, what surprises me too about the '80s, like you mentioned, her audition with Sidney Pollack, where she um, was desperate to play that role, so she went out, and he didn't think she was sexy enough, or she heard that he denied that, but um, she bought a push-up bra and went in there and just sold it, right. sold Meryl Streep, you know. Um, sex appeal, all that. And he bought it on the spot. He was like, oh, yeah, she can do this. Um, Not only is she smart, but she's beautiful. But what surprised me about that is that you hear her say, oh, I wait by the phone for people to call me. And you hear her say she lobbied for the role of Sophie, Sophie's Choice. The director wanted to give it to um, a Czech, a- obscure Czech actress. Right. Um, she lobbied for the role in Out of Africa. Um, she was really a go-getter, more ambitious than she makes it uh, sound. Um, you know, when she's doing interviews and she's trying to be liked, she doesn't want to come on too strong. But then you have actresses like. Susan Sarandon gave an interview to the Chicago Tribune in 1989 where she complained about Meryl getting first dibs on all the roles. She's like, all the good stuff goes straight to Meryl. And then we get the leftovers. And then she said something to the reporter, oh, it was Gene Siskel. She said something to him like, um, if her life is as perfect as the media would have it seem, then I'll be damned or something. Wow. <laughs> so people were really... But then Meryl wanted that role in Thelma and Louise. And, you know, Ridley Scott cast Susan Sarandon and the movie, I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Right. But actresses were really jealous of her. So it, you know, it seemed like she got all these opportunities. Right. And she was getting all these awards. And then um, you had other actresses feeling left out, which was kind of, stunning to me and meanwhile Meryl was really jealous of Jessica Lange right. which I'm sure you know and yeah. wish that she were um, as conventionally pretty as Jessica at the same time right that's so. that's really shocking I actually did that's another thing I didn't know was all the Sarandon stuff and the thing that immediately comes to mind is 
um, when Susan Sarandon won Best Actress for Dead Man Walking, Meryl was nominated that same year. I guess it must have been Bridges of Madison County. And Meryl seemed so happy when Susan Sarandon won. She seemed so happy. Like, if you watch her reaction, she's just so thrilled for her. That's kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. But it's also Meryl performing. Yeah, that's probably true. It's like, I feel like she's always, even when she's accepting awards, you know, there's so many awards, she's performing as like a heightened version of a grand dame. You know, somebody who's fun. And like Emma Thompson does the same thing. Like she's, I'm going to bring a beer on stage. I don't want to wear heels. Right. Uh, It's very put upon. But at the same time, um, it's endearing in that Phoebe Waller-Bridge way, uh, who reminds me of Meryl, yeah. in a way, um, in that she's playing this unlikable, uh, she's not a she's playing this um, complicated woman and makes her absolutely endearing. Right. Makes people want to be like her, and that's a tough thing to do. Right. So Phoebe has that Meryl charisma, and she's like that at award shows, too, um, very wry, uh, very funny, very abashed. Right. And uh wonder what she's like, you know, when when she's not being interviewed, when she's not on stage. And she's probably a lot more opinionated, a lot pricklier than, than you might expect. Right. Well, have you had the um, opportunity to interview Meryl? Um, I interviewed her in 2012 for Hope Springs. Oh, nice. Um, do you remember that? <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of those smaller movies, um, a small but lovely movie. And I, David Frankel, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I love the Devil Wars Prada. I didn't care for it because I don't like to see Meryl in those, roles where she's meek and submissive, even though her character is like, ah, I want to save my marriage to to Tommy Lee Jones, who is this terrible husband. And then she, you know, uses all of her savings on couples therapy. Then they repair their marriage and it has a happy ending, but it's kind of depressing. Well, yeah, she's she's like treated like shit the whole movie. It's not fun to watch somebody be treated like shit. Yeah. I hated it. I just hated it. So um, I interviewed her for that movie. She called, She first of all, um, taller than I expected. Really? Uh, she was, uh, she called me honey and she was warm and super nice and a little, a little um, fabulously disheveled. Okay. She doesn't like clothes or fashion. So... She was, um, I want to say, frumpy chic. Okay. Uh, British, kind of mismatched. And, but that's part of her allure. Right. Is that she doesn't have to, you know, she doesn't have to like fashion or like clothes. Uh, she's above all that. Right. Uh, but I found her absolutely charming. And for this book, um, she did help me fact check some things. Obviously, she's not going to talk about how great she is, Uh, but she did help me with fact-checking, and she did approve the cover image uh, of her looking, you know, not 
her again, Meryl, not young Meryl, but like glamorous older Meryl. Right. So she, yeah, she did like that. Yeah, that was th- <laughs> that was one of the things I wanted to know. Was I assumed she wasn't particularly interested in in like going on the record? Otherwise, I'm sure you would have done that. But you know, um, I wasn't sure if this was something that like her camp was fully in favor of. I would think so because I mean, for one of the like the biggest artists of I mean like she's she's huge you know she still is like so so present in the like public eye and the public you know I mean she's such a an important figure and there is the her again book but I mean there haven't been a ton of books about her and it makes sense that there should be and there and there would be so I would think it wouldn't be something that would be met with any hostility but you just never know there was none um and because this is a tribute uh-huh. Like, I had pitched it as sort of a notorious RBG kind of tribute. Mm-hmm. So, and also, um, her camp, uh, her publicist also represents Tom Hanks, oh, who sure. I talked to for my first book. Uh, he started two of Nora Ephron's romantic comedies, uh, classic rom-coms. Mm-hmm. So, her publicist knew I wasn't going to do a hatchet job. Right. So... It was kind of, you know, it, I wanted to be fair and write a book for people who love Meryl and want to get to know her better right. through her work. Which, um, so I have to ask yeah. your listeners, um, do you get downloads from the Philippines, from Germany, from all around the world? I believe so, yeah. I don't honestly look all that closely at the analytics. Um I, yeah. I'm not great at figuring it like to me, I can look at all of it and I, I try to figure out it's similar with my music career. And when I get downloads from different places, I try to figure out what it means. But ultimately, as long as people are listening, it kind of, to me, doesn't really matter where book came out. Um, I spent, it came out last week and I spent, um, a good hour or two just corresponding with Meryl Street fans from all over the world. Mm-hmm. They were like, how can I get this book in Slovakia? You know, how can I get it in Peru? So her appeal, um, and I did not expect that, uh, her appeal is entirely global. Yeah. And I think that has to do with um, Mamma Mia. Yeah. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada, of course, but Mamma Mia was an international sensation made like something like six hundred million dollars. Yeah. At the box office, which is crazy. Marilyn overall singing Abba, but she knew it would be a hit, um, even though everyone else kinda of laughed at her. So I think that's part of her appeal. Uh, into the woods. Um she keeps making these movies that people love into her seventies and she's you know, an international icon. Oh and the first movie, and she's big in China because after the first move, American movie allowed to screen there after the Cultural Revolution was Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> so, you know, every Chinese person of that era saw that. That was their first foray into American movies. Which and is such a unique was- choice. If you if you think about it, like I know that was a huge movie here too. All things considered, it was one of the biggest ones of that year. But what an interesting choice to represent American cinema, you know? Yeah, isn't it weird? Um, like 
there were blockbusters, Jaws, Star Wars, and Kramer versus Kramer. Right. A divorce drama, a custody drama. Right. Not uh, your typical blockbuster, but it it um, touched a nerve because the seventies were extremely tumultuous. Um, you had the feminist movement, um, and a lot of women were divorcing their husbands. A lot. Right. <laughs> like Joanna was. And so there was um, families being kind of torn apart, families unraveling. So people wanted to go see a movie, a really well-acted movie with two charismatic stars, but one that was reflecting what was ab- absolutely happening in their lives and are actually happening in their lives. So that movie did that, and Marilyn keeps making those movies today, like, ooh, The Post, ooh, that was a response to um, Trump's America, right. Trump's vilification of the press, and the laundromat, too, is, um, you know, her attack on oligarchs hiding their money, you know, just like I'm sure Trump has done if he would release his taxes. Right, So. Right. She keeps making movies that resonate with people yeah. and have something to say, which is what makes a movie um, resonate, but also makes it, uh, t- you know, not only timely, but timeless. Right. Because those movies are huge. Like, people remember them. Right. So, that's her strategy, I think. Yeah. Well, and ever since, you know, I think it a lot changed. You know, she was... She was somewhat political for most of her life, but like not particularly outspoken basically until the Iraq War and George W. Bush. Like that was kind of the thing that really started her being very vocal about it to me, uh, you know, in my opinion. And then obviously with with Trump in there, like everything changed for her and that became something that she was really willing to stand behind her views and like speak her views intelligently knowing that you know she was going to lose a certain percentage of her audience not a huge percentage of her audience maybe but she was willing to basically take that risk and that didn't you know i she seems like as she's older she's a little bit more comfortable in her own skin in that way and and more comfortable kind of like speaking out about how she feels which i'm personally grateful for mostly because I align with her politically. But, you know, I think either way, I don't I don't align at all politically with Clint Eastwood, but I also don't begrudge him for speaking out either. You know, like I think anytime somebody uses their platform um, to speak openly about something, even if it's something that can cause um, some thought, not that Clint Eastwood did with his ridiculousness at the Republican National Convention, but... Um, <laughs> You know, like, if somebody can get you to think about something, I don't begrudge them speaking out for it, you know? Yeah, totally. And like she like she said, um, I don't give up my citizenship because I'm famous. Right. She would remind you that, oh, Ronald Reagan was an actor. Right. And he became president. She thinks Trump is an actor, which he is. He's a con man. Right. You know, he fooled my relatives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's still fooling a lot of my relatives. Yeah. But he's, um he's a reality I TV host. I mean ultimately he's like a reality TV host. So we cannot talk he's about treating, Yeah. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, he's tr- no, no, no. He's treating uh, the White House like a reality show. Yeah. And even when he talks about the Democratic candidates, he's like, hmm. Yeah, Kamala's numbers are going up. Or, you know, now he's trying to smear Joe Biden. And it's just like, dude, what's next? You suck the air out of the room. Right. Uh, he might be the, the one of the best, worst actors we've ever seen. Right. But I think everyone wants the show to end, including Meryl. And she's, uh, she's willing to use her platform, even if that's, you know, speak out, even if that means losing fans. Right. And um, and she did after that 2017 speech. Um, that was her deplorables moment when she was like, oh, if you remove all the outsiders and foreigners from Hollywood, you'll have nothing to watch except for football and mixed martial arts. And those aren't the arts. And, uh, oh, man, that was a major backlash. Um in the right-wing media uh, that, you know, prompted Trump's, like, 4 a.m. toilet tweet right. <laughs> calling her the most overrated actress, and which is so dumb. He's so full of hot air, and it was so untrue. But it also made her stronger in a way. I, I think her fans, people who love democracy, <laughs> closed ranks around her yeah. and protected her and... Um, admired her even more for taking that stand, even though my own mother advised me uh, not to write this book. Because of all of that? Yeah, she was afraid. um, My mom also lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh She um, is not the biggest fan of Meryl, (laughs) and she um, does not really align with me politically. And it was more worried, I think, about, you know, you know, I don't want to go into this, but no, yeah, I no, that's my fine. mother. That's... I don't agree with her. But I think she has a different, uh, she's living in a different bubble. Right. And in her bubble, celebrities have no right. The liberal media, the coastal elite, celebrities have no right to have a say in politics because they are rich and wealthy and yada 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 so but and i mean i you and i obviously agree on this but i mean like when they're when they are also saying that donald trump is the rightful president and he's the host of a reality tv show and he puts his name in gold letters outside his billion dollar properties you know that goes against everything that they're saying about you know famous people not having the right to speak up. He's in he's in office because he spoke up. He was just one of them. You know, same same with Ronald Reagan. That's a great example. He was an actor and now he's not. I, I always find that the same people who say things like that are also the same people who all of a sudden it's um it's brave if Ted Nugent is doing it or Tim Allen is doing it or James Woods is doing it. You know, somebody somebody on their side does it and all of a sudden it's aren't they brave for speaking their mind? Well, if that's true, it's also true They're on the other side. Right. Right. It's, yeah. Um what's funny to me is they know um, they know exactly they know they're being hypocrites. Right. Um they know um, it's hypocritical to say that Meryl has no right to say anything. Um, when Donald Trump, a former reality TV host, is president, and his stupid name is plastered all half over, yeah, over half of New York City, 
um, and ruining Chicago skyline. Right. And so on. I think they're aware of that, but as long as he uh, targets people who aren't like them, um, who they consider threats to their status quo, they don't care what he does. I I agree. And and they will never admit to, to... their racism. They just, oh, we, it's a gaslight. It's a cycle of gaslighting. It is. Um, well, and the other thing that is important to acknowledge is like the one thing Trump is is great at, and really the only thing Trump is great at, is changing the conversation. So as soon as it becomes, well, you're hypocrites because, he'll change the subject and get us talking about Hillary's emails again or something else. So we never dwell, we never get them to answer a question. They never have to actually justify anything that Trump has done because they're so good at making it about Obama or Hillary or, or any of the other things. It ne- they never answer a question. They never back up their information. And they're just great at, at that, which is frustrating. But, you know, the... Evade, 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 deny to right. it. And what's weird to me is they're like, um, you know, America, you need to move on from Hillary. But they haven't moved on from Hillary. We all have, we've all moved on. Right. Oh, believe me, from that um, trauma. Right. If, if you will. But he keeps freaking up her email. Yeah. He, he, we forgot about her. We want to forget 2016 and move on. Right. Somebody else. But it, he won't let us forget that. Right. He will. You know? He's just, he's a, he's a terrified, angry, irrational man who, who I think probably just spends his days screaming alone in a room at, at, at Fox News. I mean, like he's the saddest person on the planet, if you ask me. But he also got what he wanted, which is the country talking about him 24-7. That is what he has always craved. And that's what we're giving him. And we can't stop ourselves from giving him that, which is, to me, the daily struggle. Like, we are giving him what he wants. Ne- negative attention doesn't matter to him as long as it's attention. And that's heartbreaking in some ways. So bleak, right? Because if he um, loses the election, he's going to keep doing that. Yep. But since he's not the president, he might uh, go even farther than he has. Right. And incite violence, and that civil war that he's talking about—it's—it's, it's, you know, gosh, this is such, I'm like, I try to avoid Trump talk on social media, mm-hmm. and just because I feel like it's adding to that, it's giving him what he wants. Like you said, it's making it worse in a way. But um, I do like to bring him up in my book events. Yeah, <laughs> and like, well talking about my book because I'm talking to like-minded friends. Right, and Meryl supporters, uh, so. (laughs) Right, right, and Meryl supporters, and um, those go hand in hand. Yeah. (laughs) Anti-Trump, it's like a safe space. Yep, yeah, it's, um, we we can get off the the Trump thing now, although our viewers, or our listeners rather, are, are quite used to this at this point. But, you know, like, fundamentally, it's like, I'm not too worried about what he does once he's out of office because New York State is going to handle him. Like, even if, even if he's not impeached, even if we can't bring him down on this, once he's out, he's toast. Like, they just, they're just waiting for him to be out of office. And there's going to... Lock co- him 
that, the hell up. They will. And mm-hmm. you, the thing that the other side, um, I wish they would remember is, you know, the pendulum swings both ways and it's going to go the other way. And they're going to ask us to all of a sudden, you know, be moderate and not extreme in, in after what they've done to us. And, um, you know, we're going to have some choices to make because what we've been put through in the last three and a half years, four years since he started running is really crimes against humanity. And I know that sounds like hyperbole, but it is 100% true. It is crimes against humanity that he has committed, knowingly committed. And his supporters have done that as well. To me, me it is treasonous how he exploits the uh, fractures, the political fractures, cultural fractures, to divide people. Right. Instead of using his platform to bring America together, he uses it to um, incite hatred. Right. And that's so effing depressing. Yep. And I, he, and Twitter still gives him a platform, but yet if you say on Twitter, I think I was just reading about this the other day, if you say on Twitter, hmm, I wish Donald Trump would have a heart attack, uh, you're blocked. Right. You, you're, you get the boot. Somebody's, aunt got the boot from Twitter because she prayed for a heart attack. I'm sorry, we are all praying for a heart attack. All of us. <laughs> well, not his fan base, but you yeah. know what I mean. Well, and the bottom, and I, he says he says worse yeah. on a daily basis, you know, and it's that's, that's again the gaslighting thing where he can go out there and his supporters can go out there. The thing that, that frustrates me, and then we really should move on from the Trump stuff probably, sure. is um, <laughs> You know, like seeing, I, I saw another one of these yesterday. Somebody somebody put up a thing saying, a call for civility, saying, you know, back when so-and-so was president, we accepted the results. And it's that whole, you know, he's your president thing. This basically fall in line um, message that, again, is so cro- contrary to their general, you know, behavior during Obama's tenure. And... Donald Trump's Twitter feed during Obama's tenure reads like, you know, the most racist and the most insane, just batshit crazy, you know. And it's the same guy who's saying, you know, I'm just trying to do my job. And it, it no, you're not. You've incited this. You started this. And you don't get to just uh, say, you know, treat me with respect after what you've done to everybody else. You started a birther movement against the oh, previous president. I have never forgiven him for that. I know. Like, he's like, I'm not a racist. Um, Ivanka's like, my father's the least racist person. Dude, do you remember the Central Park Five? I know. It's and, like, nuts. taking out that ad? Or the birther movement. I have never, ever forgiven him for that. Like, he, that was it. He, like, he, he's, that. He'll still tell you the Central Park Five. He isn't entirely sure that that should have happened. You know, like... It's it's nuts. Um, anyway, getting back yeah. to Meryl, <laughs> um, we, we can, all would agree with that. I know she would. <laughs> I know she would. This is you know if she. I think there is a point zero 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 one percent chance she's aware of our podcast. But you know what? If this is the episode she finds, she'll she'll I like it. I think there's a ninety percent chance she's aware of it. Well, she's and... she's probably aware of it, but I don't know that she listens yeah. to it. But. Um, 
So one of the things that uh, Meryl, my co-host Meryl and I talk about every once in a while is the idea of, you know, how varied Meryl, Meryl's career has been. If you think about genres, like obviously comedies and drama, she's done a ton of. She's done suspense with things like The River Wild and even Still of the Night. Um, even Manchurian Candidate kind of falls into that category. Um, you know, she's she's covered a lot of ground. Uh, the one genre that she really hasn't gone into too much is both like sci-fi and horror. She hasn't really put too much of a finger in either of those camps. Um, are there any kinds of movies that you would like to see her make? Like what, what do you see for her career moving forward where, you know, more of the same or what do you, what do you see her doing and what would you like to see her do? Well, she's a shape shifter. So she's always adapting and inserting herself into the zeitgeist. Um, she did it with adaptation after a career slump for music of the heart. Um, she, uh, Signed on to work with Spike Jones in an, an unexpected role, uh, an adaptation, and then um, you know she keeps aligning herself with younger talent like Greta Gerwig in Little Women. Yep, and Steven. December, S- as you know, I'm super excited about that. Yep, Steven um, Soderbergh too. Yeah, I I cannot wait. I know. Big Little Women fan, um, but the thing I see her doing more of is where all the good roles are these days which is on TV Interesting. or the streaming service near you. So Big Little Lies uh, was just an interesting career pivot for her because you would never expect Dame Meryl Streep uh, to, uh, you know, to go into TV. But um, that's where some of, the best work for actors is. And right. um, Big Little Lies, you know, Powerhouse, Nicole Kidman, uh, Reese Witherspoon is fantastic, and that Laura Dern is no exception. Uh, it's like a, the golden age of television is still continuing. Um, probably started with um, Sopranos and Sex and City. And uh, you think Meryl might do some TV around then, but it was still kind of like, ooh. If I do TV or even Broadway, that's a signal to people that, um, you know, my career is in trouble. Like you had David Caruso. What did what, what show did David Caruso leave? NYPD um, Blue. Yeah, that was like he wanted he wanted a movie career, and that was a big mistake because oh, yeah. his movie career tanked, and he left a really good show. Yeah. So um, that just wasn't done. Like it was frowned upon. Oh. She, she can't make it in the movies, but um, now it's just flipped because people, uh, the way people view and consume content now um, and all the different options and technology and yada, yada, yada. So Meryl is finally adapting to that. Right. And uh, it's a good thing. I would like to see her do a um, kind of dark, moody, Helen Mirren style police procedural mm. where she's the center of the drama yeah. and not just kind of a terror, you know, a, a mother-in-law terrorizing Nicole Kidman, <laughs> but so brilliantly, yeah. <laughs> so good. And, uh, but I want to see her uh, star in her own miniseries. Well, or not miniseries, but you know, 
like a series 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 yeah interesting she had one um and i think it's i i should probably look but i don't know if it's still in development but she had one that she was developing at one point with jj abrams about two years ago called the knicks um that sounded like it might be something and then you know like as we've been talking about she's kind of gone from really interesting project to interesting project within the last few years and has taken some I feel like the Steven Soderbergh stuff is the stuff that surprised me and you know she finished the laundromat and then did another movie with him like right after that with with him and co-starring Candace Bergen I think and Diane Wiest um I can't remember who else is in that one but that that makes sense to you like Soderbergh as a Soderbergh as a director for her. I mean, I'm sort of skeptical about that. Are you really? Um, I, yeah. I don't understand why she wants to work with him on two movies. And I I don't know. He always struck me as kind of a creep. Interesting. Um, but then again, I don't know him, so that's hearsay. Sure. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I would think she would work with another woman director um, so I'm kind of surprised by that. Were you surprised in a different way? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, as I don't know that I've ever even seen David Soderbergh interviewed. I have a vague, I, I, if I like try to picture him in my mind, I picture Moby. I don't know if he looks kind of like Moby, but that's Me kind too. of- Me too. Okay. And Moby is a total creep. I went to a party at his house in the early 2000s and my a friend of a friend knew him and- Oh, yeah, but I get the same vibe from him. Interesting. Uh, he's totally Moby. <laughs> totally Moby. So I don't, I mean, um, Steven Soderbergh is anyway. such an interesting, and I mean, again, interesting is a really vague word. I, I hate saying like unique or interesting because it can mean so many different things. But what I mean by interesting is like you just never know what you're getting with Steven Soderbergh. It could be something so mainstream and glossy like the Ocean's Eleven stuff that he did um, or even Aaron Brockovich to a certain extent then you could find something like really truly gritty like his early stuff and his you know like you just never know what you're gonna get and there's something about that that kind of interests me with Meryl um, the reviews that have come yeah. out so far for the laundromat have been kind of so-so and they say she's great in it but the movie is basically kind of a ripoff of the big short that movie that came out a couple years ago that adam mckay did um and but the thing that's really was really surprising to me about all of that is again she made a second movie with steven soderbergh like right away and it by the time it was announced they were so deep into filming it was like two weeks later and the movie was wrapped and that's shocking she was filming that right after venice the Venice Film Festival. Then I feel like she took a transatlantic cruise with Candace Bergen. Hmm. Then she was up in Toronto. And I was like, wait a second. All I did this weekend was my laundry. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, well, you mentioned that, like, okay, Soderbergh never, you know, he's he makes unexpected choices, never does the same film twice. And I think maybe that's what drew her to him right um that you're not gonna she doesn't like monotony um i think she likes working with him it sounds because he is the same way yeah that could be yeah, yeah. i mean if, 
It's probably just, you know, like, you know, I feel like it's kind of like all the, I don't know, I almost hesitate to go there, but it's kind of the same stuff that happened with all the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Like when that story broke, um, all the people who were so mad at her for, you know, speaking out against Trump were now saying, oh, you know, well, you knew about Weinstein and the argument was always like, why would Meryl know about it? You know what I mean? Like Harvey Weinstein wouldn't have acted that way with like the biggest actress of art, you know, like he just would have been on better behavior around Meryl, you would think. Completely. And I would think. He was afraid of her. Yeah. And I would think the same thing with Steven Soderbergh. Like if he is kind of a weirdo, like he probably toned it down around Meryl fucking street because why wouldn't you, you know, like you have to be on your best behavior around her. He makes a movie relevant. Right. It's like, of course he toned it down. Right. And Harvey was terrified of her. Like she was only in his office once with Wes Craven, um, you know, while deciding to do music of the heart. So, I I believe everyone, let's see, Harvey had a cloud of negativity around him. Like, you, you had heard the casting couch rumors. Everyone had. Mm-hmm. Um, and his kind of terrible reputation, short temper. He was mostly known, like Russell Crowe, for his short temper. Right. And I believe, and you heard the casting call rumors, oh, this actress kind of slept her way to the top, which they say about all ingenues, and it's annoying, and Julia Roberts went through that. So that has been as old as Hollywood has been invented, the casting couch. But what he hid from Meryl and um, people he saw as powerful and as peers was his abuse, uh, sexual harassment of women, particularly ingenues, so I believe Meryl when she said that she didn't know. Yeah, I do too. Because the viewers hide their tracks. And if she had known about that, like, I believe she would have said something. Especially, like, given the lengths that he has gone through uh, to cover up his abuses. Like, surveilling, hiring Mossad, basically. Right. <laughs> or Mossad agents to, like, surveil his victims. Um, if she had got a whiff of that, she would have talk to every studio head and the New York Times for sure. Well, yeah. And she just would have refused to work with him, I'm sure. And, you know, like talk to other people, other actresses and encourage them not to as well. But, you know, like the, the other thing to consider, and I mean, this is kind of a, it's kind of a strange way of thinking about it maybe, but like Harvey Weinstein is in Hollywood, like the tip of the iceberg. So in some ways, like if there are rumors about Harvey Weinstein, that wouldn't surprising and there's probably rumors about like virtually every producer in Hollywood you know I mean maybe not everyone but I'm sure more than not and you know like to hold somebody accountable for hearing rumors about this one is absurd in in a lot of ways oh yeah because they want they want a scapegoat right. um so there is that whole weird like right-wing guerrilla campaign that um, weirdly Rose McGowan was aligning herself with. I don't think she realized. Right. Because <laughs> she was on Twitter like, oh, she knew, blah, blah, blah. So then um, right-wing pranksters took that and plastered that poster with Mer- you know, Meryl's face on it, and she knew all over L.A. Right. And the intention there was to weaken and divide the movement, the Me Too movement, 
and make Meryl the scapegoat and then undermine the movement. And uh, that didn't happen because Meryl, uh, you know, has so many fans and people who love her. And when she said that she didn't know, we all believed her because she was telling the truth. Yeah. So um, that campaign, in effect, you know, <laughs> made her um, even more of a survivor and made her, uh, you know, even stronger. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying this correctly, but um, no, I know. It's sort of. I know what you mean. She will always. She will always survive these kinds of things. Right. Yeah, she ended up, um, I don't think it, it tarnished her image really in any way because like it was just, it's it's a threadbare argument. Like there's just, it doesn't make any sense with Meryl's character. Like she was speaking out about these things long before most people were. You know what I mean? Like she, she was talking about this stuff a long, long time ago and I just, she went to put up with it. There's no reason, there's no like logical reason that she would have put up with it because she wasn't in a position where she had to and she also wasn't as we talked about she wasn't in a position in which she would have been confronted with that kind of behavior so how could you assume that she would have heard rumors about it you know I mean she's pretty isolated in that way you know it doesn't make much sense and like you um she wasn't in a position where her career would end if she spoke out right against it Right. Like, uh, if anybody's going to cancel Harvey Weinstein, it's Meryl. I mean, he's not canceling Meryl Streep. Right. <laughs> but he can ruin the careers, um, or try to ruin the careers of, say, um, Rose McGowan. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, he tried, but then Brad Pitt spoke up. <laughs> but you're you're right. You're just, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I don't I don't want to take up too much of your time. I appreciate the time that you've given me so far. So one of the things, because this has been so enjoyable on my end, one of the things I'm tempted to do is, if you're interested, I'm going to invite you back right now for when we do an episode, if there's a movie you want to talk about, we want to, let's have you back on the show and talk about a specific movie and give your insights into that movie. I would love that. I would love that. Um, I would love that so much. And then you get to meet the other Meryl too. Do you have a, you talked about plenty. That seems like maybe an obvious one to do, but um, do you have a one that you have strong opinions about one way or another? I would, uh, I would love to come on. If, uh, have you guys done Heartburn? We have done Heartburn. We could revisit it because to tell you the truth, I feel like there were there were three movies that I was kind of interested in your response to because I feel like there were three movies that you were uh, in your book more effusive with your praise than we were in our reviews. Heartburn was one of them. She-Devil was the other one. Although I did speak to um, Susan Seidelman who directed that movie and found her to be so lovely too that I kind of felt bad <laughs> about... Um, our response to she devil, but we just didn't particularly like it. And, um, Julia too, actually like one of her, actually her first movie. Um, those, the, I love Julia. I know. And I'm I so surprised it. by that because that was another one that like, I didn't dislike it by any stretch, but that wasn't one that struck me as, I, I don't know. I found it to be kind of dull. Um, but that's just, Oh, me. that's, 
that is so no i i love that i love that um you can have a movie and there can be completely you know you can be um uh in agreement that meryl is a phenomenal actress right but you can just have different opinions about the movie itself um yeah i love julia i just thought it was thrilling and suspenseful and i just um I don't know why I, I was the first <laughs> in my in my Meryl movie marathon. That was the first one, so maybe I loved it a little bit more than I should have. Right. Um, but no, I really loved that movie. Um, and She Devil. So Susan, what shocked me about Susan is that she's more earnest than I thought she would be. Oh yeah, totally. Um, did you get that too? Um, she's very sweet and she's very earnest about her art. And yes. given the tone of She-Devil, I thought she'd be like Amy Heckerling, you know, who directed Clueless. I thought she'd be off the wall, but yeah. she's not. <laughs> no, she was totally normal and like so articulate and so well-spoken and so kind. She was really lovely. She, um, she, she, she and I spoke. She asked that I not record the conversation. She, which again, like that actually, if you think about it, that's so kind. Like she just wanted to give me information about the movie and like, go out of her way to like, you know, tell me, you know, give her response to questions that I had about the movie, but also didn't want to make it like a formal interview, which is like really generous if you think about it. I don't know. There's something about that that was just really well, generous, I think. Yeah. I'm surprised she gave me an interview um, because that movie was um, uh, interesting. It was an interesting movie for Meryl to make. Yeah. Um, uh, darn it. Um, <laughs> I, she and Ed Begley um, Jr., uh, you know, they play lovers in that movie. Um, there was a lot happening off the set that um, they might have not particularly been fond of each other. You know, I, I there were things that I read um, Interesting. Uh, in my research at the Margaret Herrick Library that made it seem that like, that movie was more uh, dramatic uh, off-camera than Meryl gave in her on-the-record interviews. Um, I know I've seen Coy right now, <laughs> but we should revisit this movie. Um yeah. And I'll figure out how to talk about it. Yeah, that one or Heartburn. Heartburn is, is yes. to me, um, we should just do like a, a mid-80s episode where we talk about plenty Heartburn and She-Devil, for that matter. Um, but the uh, the th- the thing with Heartburn, too, is like I didn't... Meryl, my co-host Meryl, was so nostalgic for that movie because it was just one that her mom loved. And so she like grew up watching that one a lot. I never had nostalgia for that one. And so by the time I got to it, it like, I liked the movie, but it almost had the same sort of thing that we were talking about earlier with, um, I'm blanking on the Tommy Lee Jones one that she did. We were just talking about it. What is that movie called? Hope Springs. Hope Springs. I wouldn't say Hope Floats for a second. Hmm. Hope Floats. But um, that sort of thing where, like, you know, she gets cheated on and, like, you know, I, it's funnier than Hope Springs is, I think. But um, it's, I don't know, there's something about it where I don't like seeing Meryl like that. It feels like she's being, uh, I don't know, there's something about it that's hard to watch. I know she kind of gets victim. her revenge, but I don't know what that is. She's a but victim. She's a victim, yeah. I don't I like would, seeing her as a victim. 
she's a victim, and I, I don't like seeing Meryl in those roles. I like the strong, um, powerful Meryl. The roles where she's passive, like in Hope Springs, or a victim in Heartburn, those are harder to watch. But Heartburn, um, I love, I think, because I'm a Nora Ephron super fan. Right. And also, um, you know, the whole story behind the making of that movie was that Nora's ex-husband, Carl Bernstein, tried to, she tried everything in his power to get that movie, like, you know, to end that movie, to stop that movie from being made. So um, he had it in their divorce contract that he had script approval, so the script was, like, less funny, less arch, and much toned down from her book. Her book was like a, you know, a hit of acid. <laughs> it was like this, uh, you know, bitter but very funny and endearing monologue about Nora's disastrous divorce from Carl Bernstein, one of the Watergate superheroes. Uh, he left her when she, she was seven months pregnant with her second child. So um, this was a movie directed by Mike Nichols, too, a good friend of Nora's. And they just wanted to make a funny movie, and Meryl wanted to do, a, to do a comedy. The thing is, this movie wasn't a comedy. It wasn't very funny. Right. It uh, it was a drama. Right. And um, so I feel like it was one of those kind of muddied uh, films, which um, wasn't a comedy, wasn't a drama. It was a dramedy somewhere, you know, somewhere in between, but mostly a drama. Right. And um, Mandy Patinkin was fired. So I love the story behind it. He was fired, replaced with Jack Nicholson. Then Jack Nicholson starts falling in love with Meryl. Right. He I, starts to believe that's that amazing. he's in love with her. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, and, if they had actually become a couple? That is so bonkers to me. Because I'd always heard rumors about that. I'm glad you put that stuff in, in the book, too, because it just... There is always stuff that you heard about with that movie, like the famous thing about like Meryl throwing him out of her hotel room or whatever that was. And, you know, I'm sure unsubstantiated. I'm sure not true, but, you know, maybe true because like Jack was I I wouldn't put it past Jack to try. I wouldn't be surprised if Meryl threw him out of the room. (laughs) But, you know, like but there were always rumors that Meryl was so upset about it. She swore she would never work with him again. And then the next movie she makes is another movie with Jack Nicholson, which kind of makes me think, oh, well, it must not have happened because she wouldn't have turned around and made another movie with him then. Yeah, no, they like were friends. Right. Um, inseparable. On this, the next movie they did together was Ironweed. So they were inseparable on that set. Like she would go to dinner at his house rented house in Albany where they were filming and um, that led to their closeness led to rumors of a showman right which doesn't seem right because she would drive back to Connecticut right he was gone and their kids right and um, but she's so family oriented but I love the thing about Meryl she's perfect she's um, like unlike other divas um there are no big feuds. Um, she has this, she projected certainly in the 80s and, and the 90s, this perfect image of a virtuous mother. And in her performances, you see the cracks. Um, but she's so private, like, and 
also really a wonderful person in real life and um, very highly principled that any sort of whiff that there might have been a showman is tantalizing. Right. Because makes it uh, makes her, she's just interesting by virtue of who she is, but it makes her, a, it gives her an edge that you wouldn't expect. Um, but yeah, so I thought that rumor was interesting. I did too. Sure. And the only... <laughs> The only other um, co-star that I remember hearing something similar, and again, I don't believe it for a second. I shouldn't even talk about this stuff because I don't believe it. I'm just putting it out there onto this podcast for other people yeah. to like gossipy, but maybe I'll cut this out. But um, is the is Jeremy Irons, actually, when they did French Lieutenant's Woman, which is, again, like, I just don't believe that to be true. Like, it just doesn't seem in her character, especially at that time in her life, you know, like it just doesn't. Oh no. Like she was on set of that movie. Oh, that is not true. Yeah. She was on set of that movie in England, um, or on location with, uh, Henry and then, wait, not Mamie, maybe Mamie, Henry and Don. So Don had moved all of his art. (laughs) He was working on his art, taking care of Henry and yeah, she was with them every night. And sometimes Jeremy would uh, go over and have dinner at their house yeah. after, you know, Dave's filming. Right. Um, or on their breaks. So what prompted that speculation was that he gave an inter- interview and said, um, oh, yeah, for one day when we were filming, Meryl and I had an affair. And the affair stopped when the, you know, camera or whatever stuff rolling and um, I think what he meant was they were just acting right (laughs) (laughs) I believe it might have been that scene on the bed you know when he ravishes her yeah and um, and her giant auburn wig yeah and um, yeah that's what they were packing so then she had to respond to the media she's like it's called acting right and that of course because she is so perfect any whiff of an affair right. uh, makes headlines. I feel like that was in that um, that first biography of her, that the her, the reluctant superstar one, the one that she oh, was I so the one that she was so <laughs> upset about back in the day. That that great story she was about coming really back upset from about that. Yeah, yeah, she did not like that one. But um, my favorite thing about that biography is. Well, I read it, and you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I did. It was hilariously, um, you know, biography of its day. I think Diana Matrix, the biographer, worked at the Post, so it has, um, I think, kind of more gossipy details. And um, in the copy, I don't know if you have this in your copy, but if you turn the book over. Um, there's a giant photo of the author. Oh. <laughs> like, in full eight, early 80s glamour shot um, mode. So there's Meryl's photo on the front of the book, but then you turn it over and the author's photo is as big as Meryl's. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my bookshelf to see if I can find my copy of it. I have, like, the, oh, yeah. the mid-80s uh, uh, print, uh, what do they call that, the soft cover of it, not the, not the hard cover, but... Um, oh yeah, I'll send you the hardcover um, just so you have it for your collection. <laughs> it's so funny, and I love the story of when uh, 
she and Tracy Ullman are flying, they're filming Plessy, they're flying back from Tunisia, and uh, the plane blows an engine, and it starts descending, and they think they're going to die. And Meryl is like, oh my gosh, that writer who's writing that terrible biography of me is going to have a perfect ending. And the perfect ending would be like, oh, you know, Oscar winner dies in fiery crash. But uh, they made an emergency landing in East France and all, you know, the rest is history. Um, but I thought that was funny. Like, she was terrified of what this woman would write about her. Right. It makes total sense that that would be the thing that you're thinking about as the plane's going down. Oh, right? But Meryl always has to be in control. Yeah. And part of the re- way um, she controls her own narrative is not to let anyone into her private life. Yeah. The less thing people know about her, the better yeah. for her. That's interesting, actually. I hadn't really considered that. But, I mean, that it, one of the yeah. things that you have kind of running through your book is this kind of, like, gentle, uh, humorous plea to have her, like, finally join social media. That's why she... I love that. That's why she's not, you know? That's exactly oh, yeah. the reason that she's not going to do that. She doesn't want anyone to know who she is. That's the, that's the thing. Whereas Candace Bergen, who's um, in that Steven Soderbergh movie with her, Let Them All Talk. Candace Bergen is super active on Instagram, and she's always embarrassing her daughter, <laughs> Chloe. All just like, so she was filming that. It's called Let Them All Talk. Yeah. She was filming the movie on the cruise ship and Instagramming Meryl and Lucas Hedges, and Meryl's is like, oh hi, like she's wearing like a breezy black button down, and it's. It was great to see glimpses of Meryl on Candace's Instagram. But she's also um, kind of, uh, like, she doesn't, she's impulsive with Instagram. So she, on that cruise ship, Candace Bergen took a photo of a family in a hot tub. And um, they were just a normal family, and it just felt invasive. And her daughter's like, Mom, take that down in the comments. And then Candace took it down. But I can't imagine Meryl, because she is hyper-aware of all signals, she's hyper-aware of her image Mm -hmm. and uh, the consequences of posting something like that, that she would never do it. Yeah. She's constantly policing her image. Right. Well, and she also seems aware of the idea and what it is to be, like, overexposed and doesn't seem interested in... She doesn't even really do that much press anymore when her movies come out I mean like she does for some of them for some of like the bigger you know Mamma Mia and Devil Wears Prada she kind of hit the circuit a little bit but like outside of you know she'll do a couple talk shows but you know she can probably control those interviews to a certain degree too but even you know like Candace Bergen is a great example but Glenn Close is on Instagram too you know another contemporary of Meryl's and she'll just like set up these videos where she's just talking to the camera you know and in a way it's just kind of like like you say it's it's an interesting glimpse into what their real life is like but there's something about it that feels strange somehow oh yeah to see like a friend of mine um knows the woman who does natalie portman social media mm-hmm. i don't know if you follow natalie portman on instagram i don't think so but all they all the actresses they all want to be Jennifer Garner. 
Jennifer Garner has the most adorable Instagram you've ever seen. She's huh. cooking and like telling stories and um, she's just that goofy mom with the adorable family and the golden retriever. But she, once in a while, she'll use her platform. You know, she's got all these followers. She'll, she'll use her platform for social good. She went to the, um, to the detention camps where um, all, you know, the immigrant children are being held and uh, met with them and videoed that. So, uh, which is a very, if Meryl did Instagram, that's what she would be doing. But actresses want to jump on that. Right. Because, um, you know, they want to remain relevant and also use social media for, you know, to promote their pet causes. But they also realize, oh, um, I want to be liked because uh, my success depends on a very... uh, broad section of people liking me. My box office appeal depends on being liked by millions of people. How can I do that? Hmm. Instagram. You know, cut out the middleman and or hire a good social media right. manager and create this persona that will um, help enhance my image and um, help me get better work uh, you know, into my 40s or 50s or blah, blah, blah. Meryl doesn't need to do that. She's already there. Right. She's already there. And to a certain degree, like, it's 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 almost like so many other things in her life and career where, like, the expectations for it, especially now, would be so high that there's almost no way that she could live up to it. You know, like, a bland Instagram account would be unacceptable to her. But what is she going to because she is who she is like that's that's one of the things that is kind of you know interesting about her early life and again like one of the things that I I found that I really enjoyed about your book is you know like you talked about the interesting things that happened to her in her early life and her regular normal life outside of you know the movies that she's made but at the same time she doesn't have a particularly dramatic real life like she keeps things normal and she keeps things quiet you don't hear her you don't hear stories about her out and about and she doesn't have feuds with people outside of kind of Woody Allen and Donald Trump you know like she doesn't put herself out there in a way that's like gonna keep getting her headlines for that she lets the work speak for herself and so Instagram almost seems counter um, counterintuitive yeah. to, to something like that Right, and, like, I think she would think um, that it was cheap. Yeah. Because she's, like, um, you know, there was a sense of her when she was going from theater to movies that she was slumming it a little bit. Right. Uh, you know, you, uh, one critic had, uh, what was that amazing article? Um, it was an article in Niz in the late 80s. I'll find it for you. Um, but one of the critics was, like, there's a sense from Meryl that she's slumming it. She's, um going to Hollywood to save it from itself <laughs> and bringing, you know, these high standards of the theater with her. Um, there's a, I can see Meryl telling her children, um, oh, social media, you don't need to do that. Why do you need the validation? Um, it's, it's cheap. Right. So she doesn't like mediums that she considers cheap. Right. Um, but she continues doing movies and she likes money and she continued to make a lot of money 
and that's been a lot of property around New York City too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so who knows? Maybe she will one day end up on Instagram or whatever the next social media platform is, TikTok. Um, I don't know. I'm an elder millennial, <laughs> so I don't know these things anymore. I, I don't but either. I love Instagram. Yeah, see, I'm still I'm still stuck on Facebook. I can't figure out Instagram. I have an Instagram, but I like I'm the kind of person who looks at it once a week, posts something once a month at the most, and just kind of ignores it for the most part. I Instagram isn't really difficult, but there's something about it that I just don't. I don't know. I can't I can't quite get fully on board. But you know, the one thing I I, I hope more than Meryl joins Instagram is like, I hope she does. I hope she actually returns to the theater sometime. I'd, I'd love to see her on stage. Um, I think that would be the thing for me. So one thing, um, I did learn that I didn't know about her was, uh, last week I was in New York and I went to the public theater because the illustrator for Queen Meryl, Justin Teodoro, is, was having an exhibition of his work so at the public theater uh, in the East Village. And it's amazing. He does amazing work, and um, he really gets Meryl and her spirit. So somebody there, oh, the an, uh, staffer at the public theater was like, oh, yeah, when Meryl does theater, she only wants to do theater with the public theater. Right. she will only be in public theater productions. Right. And I, I didn't know that. And um, I thought that was interesting. She's a big donor to the public theater. Her name is on the, uh, you know, big donors roster inside the theater. Her photo is everywhere. I think that has a lot to do with um, Joe Papp. Joe Papp founded the public and cast Meryl in her very first role. And she was extremely loyal to him, and he tried to hand off the theater to her. He right. wanted her to succeed him. Right. And she felt that was not the right role for her. She's an actress. She's not um, a producer. Well, and she didn't. She didn't want to schmooze. She didn't want to do all those benefits and try to get people to you know give twenty thousand dollars to keep the public afloat. That kind of thing, you know. See, that sounds fun to me, uh, but but I'm not an actress. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but so I think part of her continuing to just do public theater productions is she likes, I feel like she loves Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. Um, she just loves being in that natural environment because it helps set the mood for her. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see her depart from that and do something big and I would too fun unexpected on Broadway I mean can you imagine like the ticket prices I know it'd be nuts but um you know the one the one exception that I'm curious if you know anything about it's partially because um I'm not a big uh musical theater person I am more of like a kind of a natural theater I'm you know if I'm going to the theater I either want it to be you know something long and dark like Edward Albee or Eugene O'Neill. I don't know why I like that stuff like I do, but I do. Or, you know, like a good farce kind of thing. But the musicals that I do like are the like strangest ones. I like the ones that nobody else does. And 
<laughs> for me, my one of my really big ones is actually Sunset Boulevard of all musicals. I don't know why. And oh my gosh. And there, so Patty Lapone has this autobiography. And, uh, you know, she originated the role in London. I don't know if you know that whole thing when she was fired from that and, like, through this epic, she, like, trashed her dressing room and she and Andrew Lloyd Webber were feuding for years and years. But she got fired because they had hired Glenn Close behind her back, essentially, to do the to do the U.S. premiere. She had been promised the Holy U.S. premiere. shit. I had no idea. Oh, I had it, no idea. And it, this is, there's nothing secretive about this. I mean, it was very much out there at the time. Patty wrote about it in her, in her book. And actually, when, um, when a couple of years ago, they did a revival of Sunset Boulevard, and Patty Lapone was on Broadway the same season. She was doing a play with Christine Ebersole. And she and Glenn Close went out for a drink one night and kind of like mended, you know, they like put, they kind of made up because Patty Lapone had said some really horrible things about Glenn Close during all of this too. And anyway, the whole thing that Patty put in her book was that um, Meryl was really heavily trying to get that role in Sunset Boulevard, that she um, and Andrew Lloyd Webber, they did some sort of benefit concert version that she was at I don't think she performed in it but they you know she and Andrew Lloyd Webber came together and that it was going to be Meryl playing that role and instead somehow Glenn Close got it again I don't know exactly how much um how much truth there is to the Meryl Streep rumors but Patty put it in her book and she was upset basically at everybody because she was you know she was mad at Barbara Streisand because Barbara Streisand had recorded a couple of the songs for one of her records before the musical was out she didn't think that Andrew Lloyd Webber should have let Barbara Streisand do that she was mad at Meryl because Meryl was courting the role she was mad at Glenn Close because Glenn Close you know did do the role there was all this stuff but if there's any truth to it at all like that would have been the thing, you know. I mean, like that would have been a huge Broadway lavish production. So it's kind of surprising. I almost don't suspect that Meryl really was courting it because I feel like there would be more attention paid to that at some point by somebody, you know. But well, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, um, I think she she just loved any excuse of saying like she lost out on Evita. I, 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 she, I did read that she saw Glenn Close in Sunset Boulevard four or five times. Interesting. So maybe she was, it, it's weird. Like, you know, you love musical theater, but once you've seen a musical, like you don't want to see it five times. Although Hamilton, you know, fans <laughs> would probably see it <laughs> sure. a million times if they could. Right. Um, yeah, I think she uh, maybe thought she would replace Glenn Close. I mean, and or, maybe she was doing some sort of understudy work. Who right. knows? Or doing the Although, movie like, version, right? Yeah, I mean, that's another... Oh, interesting. Yes, I could see her pitching the movie version. Right. And then uh, taking that part from Glenn Close, which Glenn is used to disappointments. Right. I mean, she was robbed of her Oscar by Olivia Coleman. I still haven't recovered from that. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, that awful movie, House of the Spirits, um, she wanted the part of Clara, but she was told by the director, mm, you're too old. 
so then Meryl got the part, even though Meryl is two years younger than her. And, you know, Glenn was, you know, portrayed as a sister who was banished by Jeremy Irons. And, God, that was a bad movie. That was a really bad movie. Um, and it's so tough because, like, the people in it are so good. Like, I know she and she, Meryl and Glenn have made a couple movies together with Evening um, and, and House of the Spirits, but... Like and and they've notoriously been nominated, you know, so many times together, and they're friends and all of that. But you know, Meryl even made mention of that one time, you know, in the I can't remember what she won for. I think maybe Angels in America, and Glenn was up for something, and she made that whole thing of Glenn will f- forgive me for this, whoever else will forgive me, and and um, Emma Thompson will hate me forever. That whole joke. Um, but yeah, like. The talent involved there, you would think something worthwhile would have come out. That one is just almost unforgivable. And you really, like, there are a few questions that I would have if we ever got to interview Meryl, which I know will never happen. But I think there are a few ones that you want to go like, what was appealing to you about this one? Like, what what was it that drew you in? Because there had to be something about that movie that was appealing. Yeah, there's... I'll take a wild guess. Okay. Everybody wanted that role, um, you know. According to the trades, uh, which I read in my research, is that era. Um, everybody was fine for that role. Like every actress wanted to be the lead in House of the Spirit, which is like in hindsight, no. Like somebody, um, dec- oh, Michelle Pfeiffer declined, I believe, and I think she dodged a bullet. Yep, <laughs> but. Um, Meryl really, really wanted that role. I think it's because she's competitive. And um, if there's a script that is sparking a feeding frenzy, I think she's even more drawn to it. Hmm. I think she wants to win, and she would never admit this, but she's extremely ambitious and competitive, and she likes to win. But she's been like that forever, ever since she was like a bossy opinionated little girl in Jersey. She has wanted to win, and um, I think that's why she went after that role. I really do. Interesting. And why she went after Evita, and uh, probably, likely, uh, wanted to uh, steal that movie role. Uh, You know, the movie edition of Sunset Boulevard from Glenn... Because Glenn stole it from Patty. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, um, there's a hot part. She wants it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, the book was, the book was pretty hot when it came out. And so I guess there, are, I'm sure there are reasons. I bet you're right. And it's like so many other things where the answer that you would be given is probably just that it was a good script anyway. You know, you, she wouldn't tell you, well, everybody else wanted it. So, you know. It is what it yeah, is. Yeah, she would never say that. Um, and maybe she'd like the social the social message involved, uh, that it was international, um, you know, that the author was a woman and it was a bestseller in Chile. Um, kind of a global bestseller, I think. Yeah. And it was just a bomb. Yeah. It's a prestige, prestige picture that bombed. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, Meryl probably forgot that she did the movie because there's been so many movies. Yeah. No, I don't think she forgot, but it's probably so back. 
so far back in her past that she's always, always looking forward to the next thing. And um, interesting, like Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, you know, her male peers that were Robert Redford, that were huge in her era, and uh, in her the eighties, you know, heyday, seventies, eighties. Um, they aren't working much anymore, if if at all. Right. But she continues. She continues, um, you know, acting in material that resonates and that's relevant in the culture. So she's outlasted them. But you know what? Um, I think that's a testament to her ambition and also her calling. Right. Uh, she's not going to rest on her laurels and her money. She's not going to start the Sundance Festival. She's not going to sit courtside at a Lakers game. Um, she's not going to disappear um, in the shadows of Me Too, like Dustin Hoffman, um, because, oh, what, she doesn't have anything to hide. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, she's talented, and she has to, she has to act, and that's, that's what she does, and that's who she is, and um, that's, you know, it's in her blood. And somebody compared her to uh, a producer I interviewed, Larry Mark, compared her to Steven Spielberg. Because, like Spielberg, she has this childlike um, enthusiasm for her work that doesn't diminish with age and experience. So, yeah, Spielberg could have stopped at E.T. or Schindler's List yeah. <laughs> or The Post, but he keeps. You know, he runs a studio. Right. He's a huge, uh, wealthy player in Hollywood, but he has to continue to make movies. Well, and he's still still taking chances. He's redoing West Side Story. How ballsy is that? You know, like... It's ballsy. It's crazy. I mean, we'll see how that that goes. I know. He does have Rita Moreno. Right. So that's that's good. I mostly (laughs) trust in him, but that seems like a... um, yeah, that's a that is a that is a potentially that could be a landmine, you know. I mean, that is so so tricky. But I I have high hopes for it. Actually, I mean, I I think yeah, he's. I hope it. I hope it's great. But anyway, well, I think it will be, and I think that um, that's part of the charge that they get. Um, yeah. They like things to be risky. Right. Well, and Big Little Lies has kind of been like that for Meryl, too. That's kind of what you were talking about earlier, the the decision to go to TV in spite of, you know, at this point, most of, like, the big stars have moved into TV or are about to, you know. So it's not, I don't think there was any risk of, like, what this means for my career at this point. It's just, like you said, where the good work is right now. But... There was something, I mean, Big Little Lies season one was so well regarded and so um, kind of universally loved that it could have been a horrible thing to bring it back for season two. And, you know, especially when you have the, you know, most well-known and like best actress in the world in joining the cast it you know, in the second season when it's already established as this thing, this entity and I think the second season was amazing. You know, I think what they did was incredible. 
So, you know, like it is a high, it's a high risk, high reward situation most of the time. Yeah, um, I I agree. But like, I feel like she, she knew it was already good. So, I mean, it was so risky for her because everybody loves the first season more than the second season. <laughs> <laughs> so she, and she was coming into um, a situation where everybody knew each other, everyone loved each other. And Reese and Nicole were really good friends. And so Meryl was the outsider from the get-go. And they're probably all tiptoeing around her because of who she is. Right. And um, she was in Monterey for a few months. And Monterey is not New York. It is uh, not uh, Connecticut. It is very cold there most of the time, which people don't know about Monterey. I live in San Francisco. Um, It is um, not the kind of, like, resort town that people might be. It's not Santa Barbara. Right. So um, she's still going on location and doing her thing. But I think she likes the actor's life. And now that her kids are grown up and well-adjusted, she gets to go all over the world and kind of live her adventures. Right. And uh, have that freedom that she, I think, has always sought. Freedom to do what she wants. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so before I... Before I let you go for now with the with the promise that you'll come back and help us do another episode oh, sometime in the back. future. Um, what are you working on next? What do you have what do you have coming up after this? Are you just enjoying uh, you know, having put this out or are you already on to another project? Well, I am going to start writing a novel. Oh nice. So I've written two biographies. Yeah. And um, it's, it takes a lot out of you. Um, you just researching every like inch of this person's life, and um, it's fun, and it's what I do. I'm a journalist. That's what you do too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, like Meryl, <laughs> just try something different, yeah, and unexpected. And it's different because nonfiction, like it's. You know, it's it's what I do, and fiction is completely foreign to me. I don't know if I can do it, but I have some stories that I like to tell, and I have an outline for a romantic comedy that I want to write. Nice. So that's what I'm going to start working on, um, I think, later this fall, and for now, though, um, I'm happy to talk about Meryl, and I'm so glad you want to invite me back on yes. for um, for specific episodes and specific movies because I need some place to like spout my Meryl knowledge. Yeah, please, <laughs> anytime. Who equally has as much knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and that too. Not to uh, you know, we're we're here uh, because you know we wanted to talk about Meryl, but I also want to plug your book because I genuinely think it's great. And I think one of the things that, well, first of all, I, I've seen nothing like I, you know, as I was doing my research on it, I've seen nothing but really positive reviews. Like I think this book is going over really well with everybody. But one of the things that I think is important and good to um, 
to point out, like obviously people who listen to our podcast are already Meryl Streep fans. But I think based on like what I hear from our listeners when when people do write in is it it really does run the gamut between like people who are hardcore fans and people who just discovered her and who have a lot of those movies, the harder to find ones and the ones they've never heard of in the, you know, 75, 80 movies that she's made um, that they haven't gotten to yet for one reason or another. And I think your book does a great job and in fact is the really the only book on her that does do this that will satisfy both audiences. Like there's information for hardcore fans like me that I didn't know, but it's also completely like accessible for somebody who doesn't really know that much about her. So I think this is like the perfect book for people to get if you like Meryl Streep. If you listen to this podcast, oh. get this book. <laughs> Thank you. That's so sweet of you to say. And that's what I was going for because I feel like there's only a few people who have seen plenty (laughs) out there and you and me included. (laughs) So I wanted something for the, um, you know, hardcore fans, but also people who want to get to know her a little bit better. Right. Uh, Beyond the Devil Wears Prada. Right. This, this (laughs) covers. Oh, there was a whole other Meryl before this. Right. This, and more roles that you should revisit. Yeah, this this will satisfy even the even the four people who've seen the seduction of Joe Tynan. Like those people will oh love that. Oh my god! <laughs> oh that movie! Oh, I could go on about that too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's another one that is on the. How do you find this movie? Although it it does exist on DVD, you can just go to Amazon and order it. But it is. Uh, largely forgotten <laughs> as it should be yeah and a star vehicle for alan alda yeah um yeah way to waste the talent of street oh, on a vanity project yeah he seems like a really nice guy though and um yeah i have nothing nothing but nice things to say by alan alda <laughs> yeah well and you know i think that was the movie that kind of like you know she was recovering from john cazale and that was the movie that like helped her get in front of a camera again and you know act again and get her mind off of that and onto some work a little bit they say she was pretty you know it was pretty tough for her making that movie but i'm sure she was glad that she was doing something during that like awful period in her life but i don't know why we're ending this interview on this horrible note here but um you know, it is, uh, it is, it exists for, for a couple of reasons, I'm sure. And I, I don't know if that's one that she revisits. It's, it's, it's there and it's, it's fine for people to, to go back and explore. But, you know, if you had to pick your top five Meryl movies, could you do that? Oh gosh. Okay. They do change every day. I don't know. Um, but there are some static ones. Um, Oh, gosh, this is going to seem obvious. Um, This is just going to seem obvious given my demographic profile. And, you know, I would just have to say, as a Devil Wears Prada, number one. Uh, Number two, Silkwood. Okay. Um, Number three, uh, Cry in the Dark, which we didn't talk about. I love that Uh, movie. Number for the River Wilds because it's the first movie I saw her in. Mm-hmm. And um, number five, Julie and Julia. That's a great one. It's underrated. It is underrated. And a friend of mine yesterday did a book event in San Francisco. She was like, mm, that's an airplane movie. I was like, mm, no, it's a great movie. 
just because it's comforting doesn't mean it's an airplane movie. But anyway, we're still friends. Well, that's good. I, you're, I, Meryl and I keep a running um, tally from the movies that we do. And I I match with you on two out of the five. Silkwood and Julie like, and Julia are on What are your five? What are yours? My, well, actually, you know, the one that will surprise you that's on, I think, both Meryl's and my list um, is Postcards from the Edge is like a real, I don't know why I love that movie so much. I think an appreciation of Carrie Fisher, too, and her writing. Um, so for me, Silkwood is number one. I love that movie so much. Then Postcards oh, yeah. from the Edge. Then The Post, actually. I found myself really moved by The Post. Um, I love The Post. Then Julia and Julia, and then The Hours for me. I have a I have a love for The Hours. And actually, six is Devil Wears Prada. But we also, um, we also have been doing these based on when we're watching them. So there are a couple movies in there, like Sophie's Choice, we haven't done yet. That'll probably be on my list. I've seen all of her movies before, but as we're going through them and re-watching them, for me, we're adding to our list then. So there are a couple that may or may not make the list that we just haven't gotten around to yet. But what, what about Ricky and the Flash? I See, that was another one, actually, that I think you... Um, I liked Ricky and the Flash, and I love any yeah. opportunity to like hear her sing. I'm all in. And especially something like that. I mean, I'm a singer-songwriter, so like the stuff that she was doing was really appealing to me. Um, I didn't... Yeah. I didn't love the script as much. Um, I I thought that there was some interesting things in that film. It kind of took a left turn halfway through. You know, she was like, it started out as this like get her life back on track thing. And then it became this family drama thing. I don't know. It, it felt a little bit, um, a, a little bit disjointed, but I'm, I, I like the movie. It's, it's about like halfway through for me on, on my list. It's like, yeah, you know, 11 out of 22 or however many we've done. Yeah, airplane movie. Yeah. Um, I think I liked it um, because I was watching a string of her grand dom roles. Uh-huh. So Margaret Thatcher, um, Florence Foster Jenkins, and Richie with a nice departure. Yeah. And that song is so good. But no, it's not um, not her finest film, but it stuck out at me because it was like, no Meryl I had ever seen before. Yeah. I like the uh, ones where she like is so clearly having a good time. And that's one of those where like you can feel how much she's enjoying what she's doing. Yeah. I like to watch her enjoy herself. Yeah. I don't like to watch her, um, people be mean to her. Like, um, you know, the Tommy Lee Jones movie, Hope Springs. I like to see her having a good time or um, being strong and fierce. Like right. Like in Silkwood. Right. Yeah. Or in Plenty, which I apparently will not stop talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think I liked it. I think I like the movie. It's a weird movie, but I think I like it. Yeah. Well, you'll you'll have to yeah. let me know what what movie you want to talk about, or we could do a combo of like like I said, a couple of those '80s ones, since we've kind of done. You know, we've talked about a few of them. Throw a cry in the dark in there too, because that's mid '80s. We should just do the like mid '80s oh. run. You know. I am here for that. I'm 100% here for that. So, Cool. Well, so nice to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. We'll put up the links in the show notes to buy your book. I hope everybody does. And um, to the listeners, thanks. And we'll see you soon.